Thursday was great. Um, for those of you that were around, thank you for participating in Third Thursday. Uh, just the continual conversations and the, the relationships that are forming and the relationships that are advancing by us being a part of this, uh, very valuable. Uh, had a lot of good interaction with a lot of the people in our town on Thursday just because we were present. Um, so it's always fun when people come and they start glaring inside our door. They put their nose up against the glass. And, of course, I just walk up and start talking, invite them in. And then we get to talking about the vision that God's given us uh, and what we're doing down here. So a lot of those things happen. Whose water is this? Micah, it's probably my child. Okay. Anywho, next Sunday is Baptism Sunday. Uh, so we're going to practice what we talked about a couple weeks ago. Um, that's going down next weekend, so big weekend. Do we want to maximize kind of a cool, unique Sunday by hosting a meal as well, like a lunch? Stick around, share lunch together. Um, Yes, we do. We just made it. That, that's what voting looks like in our church. Do we want to? Yeah, we do. Okay, let's do it. So um, let's plan on that. Let's make it a week that you invite people. Let's make it a week that you bring. One of the greatest things that I think I've ever said and that you ever did was invite people that you don't think are ever going to come again. I don't care if you think they need a church. I don't care if you think they have a church. I don't, I don't care if you think they'll hate our church. Just invite them for this special Sunday, Baptism Sunday, sharing a lunch together. And if they never come back, that's up to them. But you get people, and we've actually found that I, I told you to do that, and you brought your parents, and lo and behold, your parents and siblings are uh, a regular part, right? It's like, I don't think they'll ever come back, but I'm going to get them to come this one time. And lo and behold, it turns out to be the one thing that they didn't know they needed in their life, right? So that's next Sunday, okay? That's next Sunday. Friends, family, neighbors, coworkers, whoever it is, uh, bring them, invite them, share lunch together. I'll get lunch for 50 people. I'm not afraid to eat leftovers, but I want you to bring enough people to where those 50, food for 50 is gone, okay? That's the goal. That's the goal. I'll get lunch for 50 people, and you're going to get 50 people so that it's all eaten. And I don't have to eat leftovers, which I'm not afraid to do. But I don't want to do it because that means we didn't do what I just asked us. Okay? So that's the goal. Anybody, everybody, special Sunday, baptism, lunch. And we'll have a good time. Celebrate. And you just got really scared because I just said 50 people. And you're like, holy crap. <laughs> so it's good. I like it. We want to celebrate new life in Christ. When somebody chooses Christ and when somebody uh, gives their life to him, this is cause for celebration. This is why we exist. It's why we exist. Um, so, anything else before we jump in? Yes? No? Okay. We started a discussion last week on what? Psalms. Anybody remember what Psalms are, other than a book in the Bible? Psalms are songs, so they were originally written to be sung, right? So when we read them, and that's one thing I found this week, is I've been studying through the book of Psalms in order to share something with you. 
Uh, I have found some of them put to music by a group called Shane and Shane, and I found it very helpful to listen to them sing what I'm reading and studying because it puts it closer to the context of how it was originally written to be used. Um, so sometimes I've been reading, and I found that this week. I was reading through the Psalms trying to figure out what God wanted me to share, and it felt dry for a moment. And then I remembered these albums that Shane and Shane put out, and I began to listen to them sing what I was reading, and it came alive again. And it was very refreshing for me. Um, so here we are. This week we're going to be in Psalm 46. And Zach, we still need to pick up some Bibles. Now that I said that, it reminded me of our conversation. So we need to pick up some Bibles uh, so that we have a copy for you to use if you don't have it on your phone or if you didn't bring one. Um, so uh, through my studies, this came up, and um, I am turning 40 this year. It's incredible. It used to be over the hill. The hill keeps moving. The hill keeps moving. Right now it's 50. By the time I get 50, it'll be 60. The hill keeps moving. Um, But I'm almost 40 years old, and here's a unique fact about me. I've never been in a fight in my life. Almost 40 years old, never been in a fight. Not one. Does that make me a chicken, or does that make me able to love well and have good people skills? I don't know. You decide for yourself. That wasn't even a fight because I was the youngest of three and they were at least five and eight years older than me. So it wasn't even a fight. It was just abuse. It's just abuse. I mean, it was like my brother used to pick me up by my head. He'd squeeze my ears and pick me up by my head. It's just abuse at that point. Uh, But almost 40, I can remember a couple of times when I almost got in a fight. I remember one time I was playing basketball with some of them. We used to have neighbors come over. I had the the house in North Little Rock, and all the neighbors came to my house when we played basketball, and sometimes that gets a little bit heated. And I remember one specific time that I almost got in a fight. I think I swung, missed, and that was it. Or maybe he swung and missed, and that was it. I don't know. Whatever it was, that was probably as close as I've been to getting in a fight. There was one swing, missed, so we just looked at each other, called it good. Um, But that was as close as I've been. Um, but you think about that. Think about those times where <clears throat> adrenaline gets running, um, fear begins to creep up. Maybe that, you, you know what it's like. So whether it's a fight, whether it's a roller coaster, whether it's a, a dramatic moment in your life, whether you're uh, like I was um, my early 20s driving one of my best friend's vehicles home from Texas and it got, uh, it was like 30 degrees, and it was a light mist, and all of a sudden we're on an overpass sideways, going 70 miles an hour. And we went sideways a few times before I clipped an 18-wheeler and landed up on our roof, right? So those moments in life where fear just captures you, right? Tap into that for a second and answer this question. In those most fearful moments in life, what physical changes does your body respond with? What happens to your body when fear grabs you? What are the responses physically that your body gives? Tense, okay. 
Anything else? Yeah, it just seems to, time slows down. And that's why it's interesting, like I rode bulls for a number of years, and I can remember each jump of a lot of my rides as if it was in slow motion. Because when there's adrenaline and fear, then it slows down and your, your, your brain captures that picture very clearly. Okay, so what else? Physically, what happens when you're afraid? Anything? If I think I'm getting in a fight or if I think I'm angry at somebody, you just, a little bit of trembles begin to grab hold of you, or at least me personally. Anything else? Some people uh, may tend to pee their pants. <laughs> scared to pee out of me, right? I think those are people that have had a lot of babies. Men don't typically do that. I don't know. There's trampolines and fear. I don't know. Just, you can bleep that out of the podcast. Bleep that out of What? Cry. Cry? Tears? Crying? So let me explain something to you, and, and we want to base our discussion off of Psalm 46, but I want you to understand what, what's going on here. These physical responses to fear, if there's a fear stimulus, then these are your physical responses. They're all part of what is considered fight or flight. Fight or flight. When people are exposed to a stimulus that creates fear, the natural response is one of two things. The natural response is either fight or flight. You engage the fear to take it on or you run away. But either way, when you feel or you recognize these physical responses to that stimulus, and then you go down and say, my body and my brain are telling me to do one of two things right now. Engage the fight or run away. And that's the fight or flight response. Uh, let me give you a quick, I had an image, but I don't want to tell, I don't want to go through all that, but there's a step-by-step -step deal. There's a threat introduced, so it's a stimulus, something from the outside introduces a threat, it's an attack, a harmful event, something that threatens your survival. And that can be survival of like physical life, or that can be survival of security, uh, that can be a financial threat, it can be any kind of threat that, that, uh, that threatens your security or your survival. And your brain, that threat, therefore goes through your brain, and your brain processes the threat. The signals begin, um, and I can't even, it makes me think of uh, Waterboy, Medulla Oblongata. Every time I read the amygdala, I'm not even going to tell you that I understand this, but it goes through the brain, and then the pituitary gland, gland um, sends out hormones, right? So out of your brain, when it recognizes the fear and the, the threat, sends out hormones from the brain to the body, okay? And those two hormones that get sent 
have physical effects that you recognize there. So that's the ultra simplified, I'm not a psychiatrist or I'm not a doctor, I don't know anything about science, but that's the ultra sim, uh, simplified version of what's happening. The threat recognized by the brain, brain sends out hormones, the hormones create physical realities that you recognize there and when you feel those and you sense them, the shakes, all those things that are going on, you can now recognize that my, my brain is telling me to engage the fight or to run away from the fight. Um, it's said that fear is the great motivator. Fear is the great motivator is the typical, typical um, agreements. I will say yes and no. Yes and no. Fear is sometimes a stimulus uh, or, right, so you have a stimulus that is perceived as a threat, uh, can be perceived as a risk to your health, your wealth, status, power, security, anything that you hold valuable um, creates fear which leads to a reaction, fight or flight. Um, so it, it is a motivator in the sense that it is almost certain to create a reaction out of you. Now, whether it motivates you towards productivity or something else, we'll discuss here in a minute. But everyone everywhere, it's, it's perceived that it is a great motivator. Therefore, everyone everywhere, all around us, communicates their cause by trying to stir up fear in your mind. Okay? So think about this. If, if a company wants to sell you their product, then they want to stir a little fear in your brain that you will begin to be fearful of what would happen if you didn't have their product. Right? I was watching TV this morning and um, I don't, God, some sort of cleaning detergent or something. I don't remember what it was, but it was all plant-based. And they're like, finally, the one detergent you no longer have to worry about. So if they communicate that well, what they're actually trying to do is terrify you to use the old product that will kill you right? It will make you sick. If you don't use our plant-based product, we want you to know that that other product may harm you. So if they can sell you on fear, then they'll sell you on a response. And that response will be to go buy their product. Um, according to my neighbor, it's ramping up for the presidential election again. <laughs> Remember the banner? Yeah. I'm not going to tell you what it says, but if you want to see what it says, go drive by my house. Um, but politicians are the same way. It's just like companies wanting you to buy their product. If a politician wants you to vote for them, then what do they do? They stir fear for what happens if the other person gets elected. Can you just imagine if they get elected, what they'll do and how it'll harm you and how it'll steal your security, how it'll threaten you, and so they want to create fear for what happens if you don't vote for them, 
right? So that's, um, that's how our world perceives. If I can create fear, per, communicate the threat, then the people will perceive it and then they will respond the way I want them to because fear is a motivator. So what are the fears, what are the threats constantly in front of us today? Think about this real quick. Give me some answers. What are the threats all around us that are continually signaling us all day, every day? Okay. Uh, so there's the. Uh, so therefore, you you think that money builds security, and if your checkbook gets a little bit low, you feel insecure. You begin to get fearful, and now you're going to become. Whatever you become, a workaholic, you're going to become, sometimes, I mean, Shelly and I, we'll start fighting at our house and we'll be like, okay, what's off? I fear, I began to feel insecure about our finances and now we begin to argue. I mean, it affects how you think and how you operate. So what are the other threats around us? Okay, threats of war. Uh, I don't. I don't know how many of you, Zach, maybe, um, when September 11th happened, 2001. Probably Tony was in this age group. I can remember being of prime age for a draft when September 11th happened, and I will say that the threat of being drafted following the week of September 11th in 2001 created fear inside of me. Right? Something to be afraid of back there. Threats of war. Threats of war. What else? What are the threats constantly in front of us today? Change. Change? Just. (laughs) Yeah. Change builds insecurity perceived as a threat to my way of life, a threat to the way things are, status quo. Um, which can be politicians, the next election. I was convinced that during our last election, a lot of the response and the, the dialogue that was happening in our country was based on fear, not conviction. That I think a large portion of the people that were attacking each other were attacking each other because they were terrified that the other group was going to eliminate their way of life. Right? I think a lot of the arguing is less about conviction and more about fear. Just my own perspective. What else? Illness, health. Yeah. What did you say, Whitney? Okay. Yeah. Child safety across the board, right? And I mean, you know that because of the comments. It's like, oh, remember when we were kids, I just got on my bike and I rode for days and this and that and this and that. 
So now we're fearful. We don't let our kids get out of the side of our house. We don't let them do this because we're afraid that somebody's going to steal them, abuse them, shoot them at school. I mean, it's just... I always ask the question, have things really changed or is our just awareness changed? I don't know. Can't answer that question a whole lot. But the fact of the matter is, our fear level is significantly higher than it was. Okay. Any more? Any more? Fear of rejection? Any specific direction? Go share your faith with them. Well, they might reject me. Go ask them on a date. Well, they might reject me. Go try to be their friend. Well, they might reject me. That can be a paralyzing fear in a lot of social settings. Especially, we have, I like to joke, we have a church full of introverts except for Tony. I mean, except for Tony. We got a, a, a a family full of introverts and it's like, it's just funny how God's brought us together, but that's, and believe it or not, I'm an introvert, right? All the tests tell me I'm an introvert, and I know that for a fact, because if I have to be an extrovert very long, I can do it, but it exhausts me. I can do it, but it exhausts me. If I'm going to be an extrovert for a day, I need to go home and take a nap. Some people fuel on that, some of us don't, Right? So here's the truth. Fear can be helpful for preservation. Fear can be helpful for preservation. If you are afraid of uh, things for your children, you can keep them alive by responding to the fear. It can be helpful for preservation, but it's harmful for innovation. Fear can be helpful for preservation, but it is harmful, it's hurtful for innovation. A person who is consumed with survival tactics is completely unable to engage intellectually or creatively. If all you're thinking about is how do I protect, how do I keep these things, these fears from being realized, then my brain and and every part of me is locked in on fighting or flighting the perceived threats and there is no freedom, there's no margin left in my life to be innovative, creative, to engage intellectually. Why? Because my complete brain activity is responding to the threat. So... Let me ask a follow-up question. What areas of life do we need to be engaged intellectually or creatively in order to thrive? So if your brain activity is consumed by responding to the threat, there's other areas of your life where you're disengaged and you're not able to thrive. What other areas do we need to have a full mental capacity and creative capacity in order to thrive? Where are we needed? Family. So, moms, 
if you are consumed with child safety and your whole brain activity is going towards that, you are not thinking about how to raise up creatively and innovatively and be uh, mentally engaged with your children in leading and helping them thrive. Why? Because you're just bent on survival. And if you're always fearful of their life, then you're not able to engage creatively and lead them in new ways. So what else? Where, where else are we needed to engage fully? At work. If you are always fearful when you show up to work that this is going to be the day that they let you go, if you're always, man, if I stumble one more time, they're going to fire me. How creative. How much freedom do you have to engage intellectually and creatively if you're always afraid that the next mistake is going to be your last? You're on survival mode. You're not on creative mode. You're protecting. You're huddling. Securing. Not risking and engaging. Where else? Where are we needed to be at full capacity intellectually and creatively? Community. I'm going to pair another one with that. Our community and our ministry. And our ministry to our community. Right? Um, I'm convinced that one of the main reasons that most people... So we have three areas of our ministry. Life in community. Life on life. Life on mission. So many of you will engage in community. You'll go watch a football game at Sam's house, eat pizza, and watch the hogs lose, and enjoy one another's company and part of being a family, and you'll enjoy that. Many of you will engage in life on life. You'll go to DNA groups, and you'll help disciple one another, and you'll do those things so that you can grow as an individual. Very few of you will gravitate towards life on mission. Why? Because the first two can feed your preservation. The third one, you have to be at full capacity, operating innovatively, creatively, intellectually, in order to engage your community on mission. But if your entire life and all of your brain activity is wrapped up with the threats, you have no freedom to be innovative or creative in how you engage your community on mission. That's why most of you won't ever go there. These two feed your need to protect. This one, you have to risk yourself. That's why Jesus says you have to pick up your cross. Follow me. The one who tries to keep his life will lose it, but the one who wants to lose it will gain everything. That's where that happens. Very few of you ever get there. I invite you all there. But when we invite you, we know that 
many people are wrapped up so tight here in preserving that you don't have the mental capacity to engage there. So today's question is this. How can we shake fear and operate at full capacity? How can we shake fear and operate at full capacity? I want us to consider that as we read our psalm this morning. Psalm 46 was written in the context of 2 Kings chapter 18 and 19. I'm not going to read it. I'm just going to summarize it real quick for you. But 2 Kings is the historical setting for which the song of Psalm 46 was written. Psalm 46 was written at the conclusion of the events of 2 Kings 18 and 19. So let me write that in case you want to go study that later. Go read the events of 2 Kings 18 and 19 and then think about and read the author and what he wrote in Psalm 46. In 2 Kings... Man, I'm afraid I'm going to need some of these later, but I need to draw more pictures. We've got to get a bigger whiteboard. Um, in 2 Kings 18 and 19, you got the nation or the city of Jerusalem. city of Jerusalem is here, and they are surrounded by the Assyrian army. The Assyrian army has surrounded the walls of Jerusalem, and they have just recently destroyed every neighboring country on their way to destroy Jerusalem. They are kicking tail all around, destroying cities, growing their empire, and they are destroying everything. And here they are, they surround the city of Jerusalem, and the city of Jerusalem is huddled up inside the walls. And here's what happens, is the city of Jerusalem, they send a spokesperson out... And Assyria sends a spokesperson to meet them. There's a small group of people who have come together, and now they're talking about what's about to go down. It's like the discussion at the middle of the ring before the bell goes off and the fight begins. Right? So here's what happens is the Assyrian leaders come in, and they're meeting with the Jerusalem leaders, and says, are you guys really going to trust in your God right now? I mean, really? Are you kidding me? Like, you think your God's going to save you? How ridiculous is that concept? It's like, is your, gonna go, is your God going to save you like their God saved them, like their God saved them? We destroyed all of them. Their gods were of no value in this fight. Are you really going to be so pathetic that you want to trust God in this moment? And the Jerusalem leaders are like, can you like, not speak in our own language? Because our people hear you right now. Our people are lined up on the wall and they're hearing every word you say. Would you please just stop discouraging our people? I was like, it's just ridiculous. It's ridiculous. So what happens is the Jerusalem leaders come back and then they reconvene meeting with the king and they meet with the prophet Isaiah. And the prophet Isaiah speaks to King Hezekiah that night reminding him he says, the Lord makes wars cease. He shatters bows and cuts spears into pieces. I will rescue this city, says Isaiah. Talking, speaking for the Lord. Isaiah is the one who speaks for God in that moment. He is the prophet of God. And he tells him, I will save this city. I destroy weapons of wars. I make wars cease. I eliminate the enemy and I will save the city, says the Lord through the prophet Isaiah. 
And what happens is they take refuge in the city walls overnight. And they come out in the morning. They come out in the morning the next day. And the scripture says it like this. That night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. Jerusalem huddled up inside the city walls. And they walk out the next morning and 185,000 Assyrian army in the army had failed that night. They were destroyed. And the rest of the army fled. And they left. The enemy was defeated. The remnant of the army fled. And Jerusalem never needed to fight. They didn't have to lift a hand. So then we read Psalm 46 in the context of how they're responding to that moment. God is our refuge and strength. He's a helper who is always found in times of trouble. Therefore, we will not be afraid, though the earth trembles and the mountains topple into the depths of the sea, though its waters roar and foams with mountains quake with its turmoil. There's a river. Its streams delight the city of God, the holy dwelling place of the Most High. God is within her. She will not be toppled. God will help her when the morning dawns. Nations rage, kingdoms topple, the earth melts when he lifts his voice. The Lord of armies is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Come see the works of the Lord who brings devastation on the earth. He makes war cease throughout the earth. He shatters bows and cuts spears to pieces. He sets wagons ablaze. Stop your fighting and know that I am God. Exalted among the nations, exalted on the earth, the Lord of armies is with us, the God of Jacob, our stronghold. It's their response to the activity, to the day, the events we just talked about in 2 Kings. The psalmist lays out three points that I believe they engaged in and that will help us overcome fear and increase our capacity for all areas of our life. We have to overcome fear to operate at full capacity everywhere else. Three points that I think the psalmist lays out. Verses 1 through 3, we're in three different sections. And if you have a Bible, it's probably separated for you so that you can see a train of thought and probably a verse in the song. 1 through 3. So we have all around us all around us, it says the earth gives way. The mountains tremble. Um The earth trembles, mountains topple into the sea, waters roar, mountains quake with turmoil. All around us are these threats. All around us, all the time, these things. So when he says in the psalm, the earth trembles, mountains tumble, There's threats all around us, 
all the time. <laughs> for them, it was the Syrian army, but for you, it's your finances. For you, it's rumors of war. For you, it's the threat to your change of your life. For you, it's the fear of illness. Whatever it is, all the time, all around you, threats are just taunting you as the Syrian army taunted them. Fear's definition is this. It is an emotion caused by a perceived threat. Fear is an emotion caused by a perceived threat. Now, I think the first step in operating at full capacity is to realize that most fears are never realized. If you want to operate fully right here, completely engaged mentally and creatively, you need to recognize that most fears realize that most fears are never realized. Why? They're because they are simply emotions from your perception. They're not reality. Most fear is not based on reality. Most fear is based on perception. It is not physical. It is emotional in nature. Are there real threats in the world? Absolutely. Are most of the things you perceive as threats real? No. It's an emotional response. You've been stirred emotionally because you perceive from your perspective that it is a threat to your way of life and your security. Full capacity comes from realizing that most threats are never realized. Much of the time, the greatest damage is done not by the threat, but by the emotions running wild as our mind creates stories. True or not? Most of the damage done is from our mind racing. Most of the damage is not the threat to your children. It's when your mind gets wrapped up in the threat to your children, the damage it does to your marriage. Why? Because you disengaged from your husband because you're huddling around and trying to create security for your children. Most of it is not your financial threat. Most of it is that you have disengaged from your work because you're terrified about your money. And when you're consumed by your financial security and you have disengaged creatively at work, you're no longer a benefit to your company. Why? Because your mind is racing. You're going crazy, creating stories. And you need to realize that most of those stories are never going to happen. Most of it won't. What might happen rarely is what is happening. That's all fear is based on. Fear is based on what might happen. And it rarely is happening. Second section, verses 4 through 7. He says, all around us are these threats. But then he says, there's like this river of delights. So he's giving us like this contrast. He's like, all around us, the mountains are crashing. The earth is being destroyed. Mountains falling into the oceans. It's just chaos. Man, there's a river of delight 
He leads us beside still waters. He calms my soul. There is a river. There, No, he says, <laughs> perceived threats all around us, but there is a river of delight. There is security. What else does he say? There is strength. All these things exist because there is a helper. And these are the things he lists in verse 4 through 7. And he sums it up. There is delight, security, strength, a helper, because there is a refuge. Jerusalem huddled up inside their walls for the evening as they heard from the Lord and as, as God did their work. They took refuge. They took refuge. Anybody remember, um, I was always the complete worst, and I still am at playing things like paintball, capture the flag. I'm always the first one to get shot. I'm always the first one to get out. I hate playing those games because I'm so bad at them, right? But when you play capture the flag or something of that nature, what do you always have? You always have a home base. And when you get back to home base, that's the one place that nobody's going to shoot me. You can't shoot me here. I'm home. You're not allowed to shoot me here. I'm out of your reach. So if somebody's at home, they're safe. If somebody's at home, it's their refuge, their, their safe place. You can't shoot me there. A refuge, literally, refuge is a high place, out of reach from threat. The enemy cannot touch you in the refuge because you are above and out of reach from the enemy in the refuge. The refuge allows me to rest without fear of being shot. No paintballs flying by my head in home base. So I can rest and I can regain composure, right? So all the responses that I just erased that come from the fight or flight process and the hormones that are rushing, where your hands are shaking, where you're sweating profusely, where all those things are going on, when you're in the refuge, you get to let those things settle. Why? Because the threat can't touch you there. There's no danger in the refuge. So then those things begin to settle. They begin to dissipate. They begin to go away in the peace of the refuge. The psalmist himself declares that God is our refuge. He says, God is our refuge. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. He, that's a synonym for refuge. He says, God himself is our refuge. But we, I, I think it's really helpful for us to understand that David and many others, though God himself was our refuge, they had a physical location for a refuge as well. And it was, for David, it was a cave. When David was running from the enemy and threat from the enemy, we would often find David hiding out in a cave, taking refuge in a physical place so that he could find 
peace enough, stillness enough to take refuge in God. I think both of those feed each other. Because you have to be still enough to find your spiritual and emotional stillness in God. If you don't steal yourself physically, then you can never find stillness spiritually and emotionally. They go hand in hand, and that's why David would retreat to the cave, and out of the cave would come many of the psalms that we have in our hand today. Why? Because in the physical stillness, he found spiritual and emotional stillness where he could write with clarity. If David didn't find refuge in the cave in order to find refuge in God, then he never would have had the Holy Spirit leading him to write these truths for us. So the question is, do you have a physical refuge where you get above the threat? All this stuff going on in life, all these threats are communicating to you. Where do you go physically that is still and above these threats? Do you have one? Real question. Was that a cheap shot at your wife for giving away the couch? No, no okay. okay. <laughs> So you have, a, a, you have a, a room upstairs in your house that is kind of... Okay. You got a room. Yeah. Not the place where you go watch the news and hear about all the horrible things in the world. Not a place where... Your work is constantly texting you, telling about all the things that are falling apart in your job. But it's a room that is physically still so I can have that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mine also is a room upstairs. Uh, we designated a room off of our bedroom to become our office. And my office is sometimes a valuable refuge. Depends upon how frequently the kids come up. Uh, and I also noticed this week that as I try to find refuge in that office, that's the, the most quiet, the most still place in our home on a consistent basis. Um, the fact that my computer is attached to my phone and all my texts and calls come through my computer, 
eliminate stillness, so I have to turn notifications off on my computer because I do a lot of reading on my computer. I do a lot of scriptural studies on my computer. So I've either got to eliminate the computer and go back to paper or I've got to eliminate the notifications constantly stirring up trouble, threatening me throughout that time and that place. But my refuge is the office upstairs as well. And on occasion, when the weather gets cooler, I can have a refuge on our back patio, especially when Shelly goes to work, takes the kids with her, then the back patio is an incredible refuge for me to find that physical stillness that allows for spiritual and emotional stillness to occur. So what about you? Do you have a physical refuge? So it can be the center of our home if everybody else is asleep or gone. But there's got to be physical stillness if you want to find spiritual and emotional stillness. Can't be messages of threat, constantly buzzing. And that's what kids are messengers of threat. <laughs> Anybody else? Do you have a physical refuge? If so, where, where is it? The car can be a valuable place if I don't feel it full of talk radio that's telling me about all the things that are wrong in the world. Which is very much a bummer because I like talk radio, but I hate hearing constantly about all the things that they think are wrong in the world. It stills my refuge that I could find in that physical place. So here's a question for you. Is what can be gained from our time in the refuge that we would not benefit should we react to the stimulus of fear? There's a stimulus of fear and I either run at it and I attack it or run away from it to avoid it or I go to my refuge and I find a place of physical stillness that also provides emotional and spiritual stillness. What can I gain from the refuge that I would miss if I either ran at it or ran away from it? What is it, Mike, that when you miss the time in your refuge, what gifts are you missing out on receiving when you miss that time?
because of the perspective that he provides. So perspective. What else? What do you receive in the refuge that you would miss out on should you fight or flight? spell quipping something like that <laughs> so out of what Derek just said in the refuge you find rest because if I chase after it or run away from it then I just get overwhelmed and and I get exhausted by the whole process of dwelling on it or trying to fight it on my own in that stillness of your refuge you also receive equipping and clarity for how God is defeating that for you and and how to to engage it properly later instead of just I mean, I, I, I know that feeling that if you, if you perceive a threat and then you allow all your mental and physical capacity to chase after that threat, you're exhausted. You're just consumed by it. And you're ineffective against the threat, and now you're also ineffective in every, every area, every other area of your life as well. 
But if you have equipping and clarity, it's like I've put on the armor and I have the tools of warfare and I've been shown how they're usable. It's like you guys asking me, how'd you learn how to do all the things you do? It's like when it comes to handyman and construction stuff, I learn by doing it. But if you're going, sometimes that's more exhausting than if I'd have just sat quietly and had somebody show me for a little while. I could have saved a lot of exhaustion by fighting against tools and tasks that I didn't know how to do. destroys the enemy. That's interesting. Shelley says the refuge provides remembrance as well. That's exactly what in 2 Kings 18 and 19 happened. When he went back into the city of Jerusalem and he met, Hezekiah met with Isaiah, it's like, don't you remember what he did to, to, to Egypt? Don't you remember how he parted the waters for them? Don't you remember this? It's in that refuge that you're like, my battle is not any worse than the battle that God won for us before. But if I chase after it, if it's, if it's the battle of security in our job situation, it's like, what if we don't get it? I better post more to Facebook. I better put more on social media. I better make more phone calls. I better start telling more people what we're doing. I better start putting it out there more often. And then you're exhausted by trying to put all this stuff out there that nobody's responding to. And then you grow more and more frustrated, more and more overwhelmed by your fear because what you're doing is not working. It's not producing anything. But if you just see it for a little while, find your refuge, find your stillness, 
find perspective on who gave you the first job. Rest in those seasons where you're meant to rest and not be restless. Find equipping and clarity and remembrance for what God's done before. In that refuge, here's the key thing to remember. It's crucial to remember that those who hide out at home base never to re-enter the game, they lose. Home base, can't shoot me here. If you stay there for the remainder of the game, you lose just the same as the one who chased after the enemy and got shot first. So you have to go to the refuge, find perspective, find rest, find equipping and clarity, find remembrance, and then re-enter the game in the presence and the power of God to see his victory and his glory. You can't stay in the refuge forever. You can stay in Christ forever, but the physical refuge is temporary in order to find these things and then re-engage in the battle. So verses 8 through 11, the last section we have, he says this, Because he re-entered the battle. Come see the works of the Lord. He brings devastation. He makes war cease. He He shatters the weapons. Stop your fighting. Some of you have another version. And what's it say? Be still. And know that I am God. Stop fighting. Stop running. Stop engaging. Stop trying to do things on your own. Just be still. We slept in the walls overnight. We came out. He destroyed the bow. He crushed the enemy. He ceased the war. We know that he is God. He receives all glory. He is good. He is strong. He is my stronghold. He is my shelter. All we had to do is be still. But we also had to come out to see that the victory was won. If they never came out of the walls, they would have perished in the walls. They would have died in the shelter. They would have lost. They wouldn't have celebrated no victory. So what are you running from or fighting against? What are you running from or fighting against? Maybe I can ask it another. What raises your heart rate and makes you tremble just a little bit? When you think about it. So can you name the threat? It's safety and change, 
Right? Can you name it? What is, what is that fear threatening to take from you? I don't want to go to this because it's threatening to take this away from me. What else? What do you what are you currently fighting against or running away from? If you're thinking about it. <laughs> Zach's got this look, he's like, I don't want to speak, but I'm thinking about something. So if you can if you can if you can identify what that is, and then you can identify what it's threatening to steal from you, what it's threatening to, to harm and to steal your security in whatever area that's going on, you can name the threat. Here's what I want you to do. Realize this. If you run away, it still owns you. If Shelly says, I'm not going to Chicago, the threat wins, I submit, I run away, I'm not going to engage, she is still owned by the fear that she submitted to. Still owns you. But you run into battle and you say, screw it, I'm just going to do this on my own. I'm just going to fight it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to engage it and I'm going to take it over. You You risk a lot of collateral damage all over your life. Because when you engage on your own and it destroys your marriage, when you engage on your own and you're no longer effective at work, when you engage on your own and you're so exhausted, you don't realize that we have been placed in this city for a purpose. You're going to have collateral damage. You're going to destroy harmless things all around you that weren't even a part of that battle. And that's the One of the biggest things in the church right now, not just our church, but the church worldwide, especially in our country, we're so engaged in a battle trying to fight things on our own that we're oblivious to the communities God's put us in. We have no capacity to to engage or innovate in our community because we are so consumed with trying to fight something on our own. It's taken all of our capacity and the collateral damage is the community God puts you in. You wake up thinking about your fight. You go to sleep exhausted from your fight. And never once through the day did you think about the person at the desk next to you. Not once in your day did you think about the neighbor moving in across the street. Not once in your day did you think about the businesses that God stuck us right in the middle of. Why? Because you are losing to the fight that is threatening you. Because you want to do it on your own. A better way. Upon any indication of fighting or flighting, once you feel that, once you recognize that, find our refuge. Starting to feel a little anxious. Starting to feel a little bit tense. Starting to feel like I need to shut down. Starting to feel like I need to run. Starting to feel like go to the refuge. Don't do anything. Just go to the refuge. Don't respond. Go to the refuge. Don't fight against it, go to the refuge. Don't run away from it, go to the refuge. Go find your physical stillness so that God can provide physical and emotional stillness by giving the things that he gives in those places. And then, 
come out, move in obedience, and see the power and the presence of God work through you. Okay? Upon any feeling of fighting or flighting, go to the refuge, receive what he wants to give you, and then come out and walk in victory. We're going to play a video. And we intend for this to be a time for you to pray and meditate on what God is wanting to show you right now. What he's wanting you to hear right now. What are the battles that you're running from or running to incorrectly? Allow this to be a time of refuge to where you can receive and hear something so that you can leave in obedience and in his power. So as they sing, this is Psalm 46, put to music. You can watch the screen. You can bow your head. Just pause for a time of prayer and meditation to hear from the Father.